Welcome to the Recruitment Flex with Serge and Shelly. I'm Serge. And I'm Shelly. And we talk all things recruitment starting right now. Hello and welcome to the Recruitment Flex. I'm Shelly and joined with me today, of course, is Serge Boudreaux. Serge, how you doing? I'm doing great. You don't sound too chirpy this morning. I know it's Monday morning. <laughs> I'm just halfway through my first coffee. Like, yeah, give me some slack here. Exactly. A busy you you yes. have to be awake because we have the guests of all guests. Actually, one of our first guests ever on the Recruitment Flex. I'd love to introduce the principal curator at Recruiting Brain Food, Hung Lee. How's it going, Hung? Great, great to be back on the show. Thank you so much for inviting me. I need to step in straight away and talk about when you should drink coffee because I'm concerned that Shelly's talking about her second cup of coffee when it's not even 8 a.m. Apparently, this is true that you should not drink coffee first thing in the morning because there are certain things like naturally in your body after waking that will spike up so that your awareness becomes higher anyway. And adding caffeine at that point doesn't actually improve things. What does happen though is two hours after you wake up, those natural chemicals in your brain kind of decline and that's when you want to hit it with a coffee. So you want to have your first coffee two hours after you wake up and that will sustain you through the rest of the morning. Thank you, Dr. Lee. Never take where'd advice you, from someone from the internet. <laughs> no, that's interesting. So what should you do? Schooled. <laughs> so first thing in drink the morning water. is water. water. Generally, water yeah. is the first thing. Lemon water, or even can you? Could you do like tea? No, there's no point. Yeah, tea is slow release caffeine anyway, so you can drink it. The impact, if you want, is going to affect you down the road. I'm drinking coffee and tea simultaneously. By the way, I, I should tell you that. Um, <laughs> But but on the idea is, is that when you wake up, your body will react naturally for the fact that you're moving compared to not moving. So it's good to just shake it out a little bit. Then you're on the go, but your body will then decline. Your energy will decline naturally after two hours. And that's when you want to give it a, a bit of a boost. Uh, and that's where you get the maximum impact from coffee. Is that why you have so much energy? Because I, <laughs> I was just looking at everything that you do. For our listeners, and if you're in a recruitment space, you definitely have to subscribe to the Recruiting Brain Food. comes out every Sunday. But on top of that, since the last time we had a discussion, you've launched tons of content. You've always had Recruiting Brain Food live every Friday mornings for our listeners here in Canada. It's 9 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Seven o'clock Seven, uh, Mountain yeah. Standard Time. So definitely listen. So you take that content, you repurpose it as your podcast, which is one of my favorite podcasts. I listen to Me the too. tips and tricks of a practitioner. Mm-hmm. But then you release this week in recruitment, which is a very similar newsletter, obviously a different approach, but comes out on Monday on a different platform. You've always had all these tools like the Brain Food Hall of Fame, the Brain Food Larder, which I'm a massive fan of. Then you just release the brain food job board. We were just talking before I, you joined us. And myself and Shelly were saying like $500 was your initial price for a job posting. I thought it was too high. Shelly thought it was well worth the value. So let's start with your job board and we'll go into the other elements of the recruiting brain foods. Tell me a little bit why you thought launching a job board was a good idea. 
You know what? I resisted it for a long time, Serge. I, I, I really did because it's almost like the stereotypical thing to do. And I just thought, man, does the world need yet another job board? And it's quite an old technology. If you remember back in the workshape days, that was actually an attempt to change the job board mechanics. So I felt like a fraud to try and do a, a traditional job board. But I got really aware of the demand of recruiters uh, or the need for recruiters from employers. And that was very evident from the requests I was getting. And that was like putting these, okay, who's hiring this? week I had a segment in the newsletter to do this there were hundreds of jobs every week like hundreds every week to the point where I just got tired of cutting and pasting these jobs in there was actually a friend of mine said Hong you know what I just eyes glazed over when I was scrolling through the this list of jobs that's what he said and that just really pushed me over the edge because I thought you know what there's just so much demand right now that it's actually causing people's eyes to glaze over. Like this is, they can't process that amount. And that's just me, right? That's just yeah. me doing this, which is a, a minute amount of the overall size of the market. So the amount of recruiting jobs out there is just massive. Um, I realized the way in which I was doing it was I was essentially a bottleneck. Being the person that's saying, come through me to do it, I needed to find a way that allowed other people, anybody who needed to recruit, to post a job independently of me being and get it out there to an audience. And, and for that audience to be able to access those live jobs, again, without having to hunt through a, a newsletter. Because a newsletter is great, but typically speaking, it's got a decay time of around about three, four days. Very rarely do you go back to a newsletter that went out two weeks ago because there's a timeliness to it. Whereas when you have a job board or any kind of digital space, people do go back to it months, years afterward, because you think, you know what, there's new content on there that's relevant to me, that's specific to work. So yeah, I had to just pull the trigger and say, okay, um, let's just launch this thing and see what happens. Yeah, I think you're right. Uh, people consistently go to job boards. It's a habit, even if you're fully employed, you'll go every month, you'll go every three months, every six months, you have a shitty day at work. Let me check out what the job board says. So looking at how much content you have and making some assumptions, you want to be the central hub for all recruitment type of information. Is that the goal of how much that recruiting brain food is out there in so many different platforms, so many different types of content. What is your strategy behind that? There, there is no strategy. People ask me this all the time. So, <laughs> You're you winging it. <laughs> yeah. Why are you doing this? Dude, there's no strategy. Who else writes two newsletters on consecutive days on different platforms? I don't know anybody does that. And the reason why no one does that is because it's a dumb idea. It's literally not a good idea. A lot of the things I do, and I hope I'm trying to explain this openly because yeah. people get puzzled by it and, and, and they're interested. The way I approach things is generally through a non-strategic approach. I think strategy is overrated. I think ultimately... What strategy is a great deal of procrastination and a great deal of trying to get validation for an idea that's always going to be a risk, which is ultimately an attempt to delay that risk being taken. So my approach is, listen, you might as well just take the risk early. If it falls on its face, then great. At least you haven't done the due diligence and wasted your time on it. It's out there. It's almost like a Darwinian thing. If people like it and it, it, there's a value to it, it's going to keep going. You're, you're motivated to keep going with it. If people don't like it, then you're motivated motivation as a person that's in charge of it will go down. Eventually, it'll just die on, on the vine. So that's the way in which there seems to be lots of things happening and not through a grand strategy. There probably is an approach, but the, the approach is almost non-strategic and it's more, okay, 
this is worth a shot. Let's, let's see what happens with it. And, and if it works, then great. If not, then that's also okay. Nothing has died on the vine. Everything you oh, want is no, not no, level of success. So I, I, I guess you're you, saying it's not a strategy, but your non-strategy has been working, if you put that in perspective. Have you not heard of the robo hung? Oh, yes, yes. It's okay. died on the vine, man. Died on the vine. So, so this was my attempt to create a, a roboticized version of me, which I thought, hey, that's, that sh- shouldn't be too difficult. And, and it was like a WhatsApp chatbot that would try and give you information. About 150 people signed up. Uh, it's still okay, but there's no way in which it can grow. And it just became a thing that you have to keep feeding. So I thought, nah, that's not happening. So yeah, dude, there's lots of things that have not worked. <laughs> they just die on the vine and no one cares anymore. And neither do I. So oh, it's, it's a good attempt. Didn't work. Move on. And one of the things that is valuable, man, like a lesson I through through a blog I read actually was this idea that speed has a value in of itself, yeah. and the real value isn't first mover advantage. The real value of doing things quickly is that it allows you to do the next thing faster because you're not spending a huge amount of time on the first thing. And what, why that's good, it basically means that you end up getting back on the horse more often than not. If, if it takes you 10 times falling off the horse and the 11th time falling off it before you get comfortable riding on a horse, you want to get to 11 really fast and not take five years getting there. So doing things quickly is basically an education for yourself to cope with failure because you're approaching everything with the proviso that, hey, yeah, there's a good chance it might not work. Exactly. Action creates momentum. So as long as you're doing things, are going to move forward. I love your courage because you're right. Just keep moving forward. Just keep trying stuff. I think what paralyzes so many people is fear of failure. They think they're going to embarrass themselves. They really think they're being judged. Even when um, Serge and I started the podcast, it was like, we don't know what we're doing. That's okay. Cause we'll just keep going, right? It will improve over time, but our intention and where our heart was at and why we're doing it has never changed. So Hung, as far as you're seen as the ultimate recruitment influencer, you've been in this space for a long time. You get perspective from so many different people across the world. As we know right now, there is tons of companies that recruitment is a massive challenge because of the current state of the market right now. A lot of companies are getting funding. They're they're they need to grow. And one of the key components of growing is actually adding the people that they need. So I want to go to two different scenarios and see how you would approach it. So if I'm a startup, just receive funding, need to scale really quickly, need to build a talent acquisition department from scratch, where would you start, Hung? Wow, that's a really interesting challenge. I think uh, the good thing is what I've seen over the last couple of years is that there seems to be a greater recognition of the the need for recruitment to be a much higher priority for these companies that have just raised and are scaling up and all the rest of it. Definitely no longer an, an add-on function. The perception of recruitment being seen as something that's very important to get right early has really percolated into the founder community. We're seeing people being recruited as recruiters for these founding companies very early on. 
on compared to back in the day, that person might arrive when it was 20 people or 30 people or more. Now it seems that person's arriving when there's three, four people in the room and the founders are, are reaching out for someone to, uh, to really participate uh, and even drive or own the recruitment side. My advice to founders is to definitely go down that track, get the recruiter in early, recognize that this person or at least recognize that if you're at seed stage, that the next important thing is to build a team. And that's your number one priority. You need to get the person that's going to help you do that. And hiring that person early is going to help. Uh, you take the weight of everything else. Another aspect of this, obviously, is the, the need also to really put the right infrastructure in place at an early stage. Tech people talk a lot about having a technical debt, for instance, the mm -hmm. idea that, you know, if you build something early and you haven't thought about what it might look like when you're up to scaling, you've got all these problems, you've got to have to scrap things, you have to do things from scratch, it'd be very difficult to unpick. You know what, recruiting is the same. You can put all kinds of cultural debt into your process that then takes someone to come in and have to rework everything. And it's a hugely painful thing because you've got efficient at a bad process mm -hmm. by not having that person there. I think to get some help early, I think makes sense. I think the choices for a founder, let's say they've got co-founders, got a few people around them, but maybe they're under 10 people. The choices they have is either you fully commit to someone to bring in full time, or maybe they march in one of these mini RPO type businesses that can be a, a TA function out of a box and get them up to 50 people before they hire a full-time person to take that over. I'm seeing the latter option more and more. We've seen mm -hmm. a real flowering of these companies that are coming in and providing these very clean solutions, I think, that can get a company from 10 to 50 without needing for the founders to overly commit to somebody who they may not know, or they, they may not know how to judge. Like a, a lot of people are not familiar with recruiters. If you're a, a person that's an engineer, a founder, you've gone down a different track, perhaps you may not have a huge network of recruiters, in which case, how are you supposed to know which is the right person for you in yeah. the stage that you're at? It might be a safer play to bring in a credible a business that can help you scale a little bit and then use that knowledge and use their knowledge to help you hire uh, your first full-time person. I think that's great advice. Let's take a look at the perspective of a company that maybe is a little bit more mature, but has done uh, recruitment from their HR department. What do you think are the trigger points that you should move talent acquisition into its own department? Is there particular trigger points that you feel would make that case? Yeah, the way I would see it is look at the roles that are strategically important for you to have in your business. And it may not be that's the case that every company has strategically important roles. It could be you're a very generic kind of company that has all kinds of different people, but you know, not, no single function is super, super important. And you can get away with more traditional techniques, if you like, to get those hires made, whether it's agency supply or advertising or what have you. But let's say you're a business, you're a software engineering company, or you're a company that produces a product that relies on software engineers probably being always able to hire software engineers is going to be critically important. Like you need to have a TA person focusing on hiring those engineers all the time. There's not a moment where that's too early to have that person in your business because this is strategically important. If you're running a, a business that has a lot of salespeople yeah, and your company is fundamentally based on making sales, 
you need to have a recruiter recruiting salespeople all the time. So I would say what companies should be doing is identify those roles which are strategically important. Some people might call them evergreen roles, like you're always going to want to speak to someone who does this because this is so important for us in, in the business. You know, if you're a baker, you probably want to speak to people that know how to make dough all the time. It doesn't matter whether there's a vacancy or not. There's always going to be a vacancy if you encounter a person who's amazing. That type of situation, that's where you need to start thinking about TA. Where there are one-off positions that are important, but they're not strategically important. That's when I think HR can competently manage that through an agency supplier. There's certain roles out there that are almost never evergreen. A company never hires two CFOs. If you did have two CFOs, you probably got a massive problem. So you don't need to build any strategic capacity to hire that person. That's an agency. That's a headhunter. Go go ahead and do that. So almost divide the roles that you have in your business or when you're doing workforce planning, divide the roles that you have. What are the ones that are strategically significant for us? That's TA. What are the ones that you want? We need them, but we, we don't need to necessarily build strategic capacity there. That's more or less HR deals with that. So say you're establishing a, a TA function from scratch. How early in the process would you look at technology? Even basic technology like an ATS. Is that one of the first things you should look at? Honestly, I don't know. I guess it's it depending on how greenfield the situation is. Let's say you go in and it is a complete greenfield site where you've walked in, literally there's the founders are doing it off their email or something. Then yeah, you need to get yourself a system ASAP to help improve these kind of jerry-rig processes or jerry-rig systems that they have because that simply isn't going to work and probably is not you know, compliant. You're probably breaking a bunch of rules by doing that. So yeah. yes, you need to, to, to do that as, as a professional responsibility. Um, most other circumstances though, you might be inheriting stuff. There may be an existing ATS in there or there may be a, existing systems and whatnot. And I know the temptation might be well, let's, let's clean slate everything and, and, and strip it all out and what have you. But that's actually a, a decision you need to make fully within context of the business. You can't march into that situation predetermined to implement this software without understanding why the existing software was in there, who uses it, what the degree of usage is, and so on and so forth. What you don't want is to basically be presumptive with what is good because what worked for you in your last business may not be the right thing for this business, particularly based on the degree of interaction other stakeholders might have on the current systems that are there. Mm -hmm. I recall personal example, there was a, uh, I went to one company, I was, you know, I have a head of town for this company and they were very committed to a very strange bit of software, which I absolutely hated. Uh, it was like, they were all engineers. I was the first recruiter in there. So they used uh, like a project management software as their ATS. And I was like, oh my goodness, what the heck is this? And I was thinking, you know what? This is like a really non-optimal solution for what I need. And I had an important role to help them get over a certain number. But it was very clear that they were very committed. The founders are very committed to it. They stared at this thing every day. They used it every day. And then I had to recognize if I was to implement something, I would have to resell the idea that they need to change their process. They need to get off this product that they would use anyway because it's project managers. They would still use this. I would be asking them to use an additional tool to do the activity of recruiting. Probably a better tool in isolation for sure, but it's, it wasn't something that I should implement straight away. I needed to work with their system, understand their process first, and then figure out, okay, how can we optimize it? And is the optimization justified by you know, bringing in a, an additional product? 
That is awesome advice, Hung. How many times do do we come charging in and think it's all about me? And that's a really great story too, because I think to dial back and take a look at how, firstly, why are they doing things? Why is it set up this way? Chart it all out before you go charging in there. One of the things we touched on was just the, the demand for recruiters. I keep seeing numbers that I've never seen before in my career. Recruiting the people that are going to recruit for you is in itself a challenge. And one of the things we talk about is most recruiters don't have a degree in recruiting. I think we all agree on that. So that means at some point, somebody took a chance on us and saw some skills or talents in us that transitioned. So in your experience, what are some of the things you would recommend if leaders are going to hire somebody who's not currently a recruiter and reskill them? Where do you see the transfer of skills? Yeah, I think this is interesting. It's possible to roll out a cliched answer and say, you know what, go to you know a state agency or something. Go to you know software sales. That's uh, very transferable in terms of skill set. Mm-hmm. Or even you know pick someone out of HR that has a little bit of fire or a little bit of tenacity or whatnot. But then you look at the personalities and traits of successful recruiters, and then you, you find out it's actually very diverse. Mm-hmm. And it seems that there's all kinds of different personality types that can succeed in this job. What our approach should be when we're looking finding new people, is there a template that we can go at? Or are there are there sets of behaviors that you think, you know, are universal and, and do make sense for this position? I think it's going to be a great deal about your ability to support someone in that transition phase. I think that's probably a critical moment. And it's a short transition phase, by the way. This is not like training a rocket scientist. I think a, a smart person could be a competent recruiter probably in a couple of weeks. So you could get this person productive in some way in a short time frame. by no means fully rounded, but they could certainly be able to do a competent job. The bigger the company, the more support that you might be able to give to this person. If you have a TA function that already has some experienced people around, that would certainly make it easier for you to onboard and bring in uh, new folks. If you're like skinny and there's you know you're one or two people only in the TA team, probably not the smartest thing to try and hire someone who doesn't know at all the process. But uh, but absolutely, if you're a, of a decent size uh, TA department, 10, 15 people, uh, maybe that's what you should be doing. You're going to get someone who is going to be probably less demanding in terms of their comp requirements. They're going to be less overly recruited by other people. And they may be just very interested in a shot. I should caveat all of this, by the way, by saying... There is this dimension of distributed working, on-premise working, because a great deal of the smoothness of transitioning from one career path to the next has historically been through being (laughs) osmotic information. I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like just sitting next to people, Mm -hmm. listening in and observing all of these things can really help accelerate that path. But if you're remote, I think that doing a transition higher is going to be tougher um, and tougher for, for, for all parties involved. You're forcing your hire to constantly make interrupts to get information. And, and that, I think, is an uncomfortable thing for a lot of people to do because you're going to end up having people that ration the amount of requests they make because they're overly conscious of interrupting other people's work. And that is going to just extend the amount of time that they're going to be productive. Mm-hmm. So, I think perhaps it does require a setup that was a little bit pre-COVID. If we're now in this state where it's remote or it's hybrid or we're not sure what it is, 
It's gonna we're gonna have to invest more in the cross train and on board than we have ever done before. So that really is something we need to think about because as recruitment leaders, we need to think about that whole transfer of knowledge. And when organizations are looking to identify who's going to lead the function, I don't think anybody's got remote onboarding all figured out. I think the tendency is to take someone who is really good at the job technically and move them into a leadership role because you're not going to take your top recruiter and have them distracted with being now your new recruitment leader. Can you talk a bit about some of the things that that do make up a great recruitment leader, whether it be a remote team, an experienced team, but what are some of the elements that really make a great recruitment leader? I'm actually not sure. I'm, I'm actually not sure. I wonder whether this shift to remote will fundamentally change what leadership is and what management is to the team based on how they cohere. Like for instance, back in the before times, let's say, I think it was much more clear how we would describe a leader uh, or a manager of people. This would be someone who would command the attention of the desk. It would typically be someone who had uh, a great deal of functional knowledge, experience, can provide that osmotic information transfer, so to speak, be a source of wisdom, be always there. And again, you can layer on all of these other sort of traits, uh, such as the ability to be supportive, empathetic leadership, all that type of stuff. I think all of that stuff was there pre-COVID, what we would describe as great leadership. But now you think about what remote management and what remote leadership is like, I wonder whether there's going to be like a wholesale shift in, in, in what is required here. For instance, one of the things that's very interesting is how performance management is changed through the concept of remote. A great deal of performance management in pre-COVID times was simply boss being at desk. You're going to work harder, spend less time on YouTube. He's right there or she's right across. Literally, the presence of the person is going to get you working. And I wonder how much of an element of that person's role was that kind of intimidation factor of being there. This person has extraordinary influence over your career trajectory and therefore your life circumstances. You better get on it. Now remote, you can't do that because literally you can be out of sight. You can do all of these things differently. What we're seeing is companies are starting to, to use a lot more people analytics data to try and do performance management. Instead of having a boss eyeballing it and thinking, yeah, this person's working really hard. I can see it. They can say, Shelly's having a tough month, but I can see the effort. Don't let it be. She's going to be great next month. All that stuff, we can't do it because we can't expect that a manager is going to be 24-7 or at least in the 9-5 kind of era present in this person's space. What will be present though is the data. In other words, how many conversations is this person having? We can track that because it's all digital. Mm-hmm, how many mm-hmm. emails is this person sending? We can track that because it's all digital. How, how does that map then to performance, quote unquote, whatever KPI mm-hmm. you want to put down there, maybe it does. So yeah. there was a really interesting post in Brain Food a couple of weeks ago about this Russian company who you know had a lot of opprobrium. I think, Serge, you saw this. And the, the dude, he basically used this people analytics data to make firing decisions on mass because that's basically how he saw it. He said, listen, what we're going to do is we're going to get all of those folks that are spending this percentage of time on not at work, and we're going to let them go. And then boom, 150 people lost their jobs. And it was a shocking kind of example. And he then had to go and defend himself the week following. Please do read the minutiae of this. It's all on brain food larder. 
But that, I think, is a crude example of how a future might look in the sense that management effectively disappears. It's literally not going to be there as a function. Performance management, it will simply be measured by your output uh, which is what we've always wanted. We've always complained, hey, this manager mm-hmm. hates me. That's why he gives me a bad mark. Okay, now it's all about, we can measure your output. Therefore, you'll be judged by this output. And maybe a manager figure doesn't need to be there to do performance management. Begs the question, what is the purpose then of management? And management may then segue into something else. And maybe it's all about coaching now. A learning um, function, yeah. Maybe it's all about supporting people. Maybe it's all about mm-hmm. uh, personal development. Maybe it's all about emotional health and physical health and those types of things. Suddenly, it's no longer a performance manager. Suddenly, we need a completely different type of person being in that role. So yeah, I think the future is going to look very interesting for that entire tier of people that were initially expert individual contributors, but then have been elevated to this role of being what this guy was used to be good at this. Therefore, let's make him a leader. Maybe that's not a legit role anymore. You bring a perspective that honestly never thought of because I've been managing remote teams for 15 years, both on the sales and the recruitment side. I think some of the key data has been the biggest thing that I've been able to leverage to see performance, not only leading and lagging data. It's really important to see those activities metrics, but you're not really managing that differently. It's still very personal that picking up the phone, talking to that person that's working in a different market still has a very similar effect, in my opinion, of walking to their desk as far as creating that relationship, that trust, which I think is critical. So I I think your point is, is very well made. I don't see it shifting that way. I do see it that we're going to be very focused on outcomes, which a lot of organizations mm-hmm have been doing a poor job is basically, are you at your desk? How hard are you working? Sales managers have been managing remotely, especially on the enterprise side for 15, 20, 25 years. So I will keep an eye on that. I think you bring a really good perspective. I think a recruitment leader will not change that much. I see it very similar as a sales leader. It's all about activity, but also the quality of the activity. Sorry, on that note, Serge, I, I think vast majority of people who are listening to this would wholeheartedly agree with you. So, so my perspective, I, I would I'd certainly recognize is, is being heterodox to the point of being far out. But at the same time, I would say that there's going to be a big shift from the people who've always been remote, so to speak. Mm-hmm. I think yeah. you've habituated in this way to the group of people that have had to shift to remote from being you know, physically present. I think that's the 18 month wrestling that we're going to go through to figure that out where, where a manager who's been used to being present physically in line of sight with team, they're the ones currently resisting the shift to remote. Cause I think they see around the corner that their, their relevancy actually is in the question. Mm. Their full function was to intimidate the team or to somehow be a performance manager by being present. And uh, that's no longer happening. Then how does it actually work? Additionally, as a final caveat to this, the people that are really good at self-directed work are the ones that you know are going to succeed more in remote they're the ones that require least management in the traditional way that people have been managed so there's going to be i think a big reallocation of people to the types of companies that suit them best and the people that want to be more autonomous want able to self-manage and set priorities and deliver outcomes as you say uh, they may thrive in this remote only situation and actually require you know less management in that regard but then there's other people that particularly early entry talent which need to have support uh, and need mm-hmm. to have the growth they will probably thrive more on premise 
I wholeheartedly agree. I think that's a really good caveat, really good point. When I'm seeing this shift, I'm like, this is not a big deal. Everyone can do this, but my experience has not been the experience of everyone else. So Hung, uh, you've been stuck in London, England for what, 18 months now? When are you traveling outside the country? Do you have any plans? What's going on in your world? Yeah, so, so I actually have traveled outside of the UK um, okay. once, but that was purely through through a, a non-joyous event. I had to do some like government stuff, or should I say regulatory stuff. That actually put me off traveling because the quarantine man as oh my goodness, you're not traveling, you're literally locked in and you're not having fun and you're spending money and it's no no good. I'm not going anywhere until we just have a little bit more uh, consistency in terms of where we're at. And there's more consistency in terms of where different countries are handling mm. the pandemic. And that's when I'd be more comfortable to say, yeah, I'll go. So probably this year, not happening. 2022, I'm hoping that vaccination rates will be high in different places that they need to be high and we can get back to seeing a few places. That'd be awesome. You're coming to Canada summer 2022. Uh, yes. deal. you're coming. You Canada. promised. Yeah, you I'd promised. love to. So. I've never actually been. It's a disgrace. So for our listeners, where can they get a hold of you? If anybody's you... been living under a rock, exactly. may I add. But for those <laughs> you're in recruitment. Rock, where can... The folks that have been living under recruitment, they can find me on Recruiting Brain food.com that's the website go sign up to the newsletter that's where you're going to get most of the stuff and i'll talk to people from there and then from there you can discover the other things thank you and always great with sharing your knowledge thank you so much hung great for having me guys thank you very much What was it like to be there for historical sports moments and unforgettable performances? To be behind the scenes? On PressBox Access, you'll hear from me, Todd Jones, and other sports writers about their experiences with the greatest athletes, coaches, and sports events of the past half century. We'll share some stories behind the stories, some big, some small, and some we've only told each other. Let us buy you around on PressBox Access. 